So um, our first reading is from Luke chapter 20, uh, and I'm going to be reading verses uh, 41 to 44, which is on page 1056 of the Bibles in the pews. So Luke 20, 41 to 44. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? So, Psalm 110, you've got a choice, perhaps, OHP, um, <clears throat> Pew Slips, or um, page 613 in the Pew Bibles. Psalm 110 of David, a psalm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Thank you so much, Chris, for reading. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, shall I pray as we look at God's word together? Heavenly Father, as we come to your word this evening, we pray by your spirit that you would give us what we do not have, that you would teach us what we do not know, and that you would make us what we are not yet. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in the whole New Testament. And verse 1 of Psalm 110 is the most quoted verse. Why should this be? Why should this be especially when at the heart of that first verse there's a bit of a puzzle? Because here the Lord God, Yahweh, is speaking to someone else whom David also addresses as my Lord. Yahweh is in conversation with another Lord, and the setting is the throne room of heaven. And Yahweh says to this other figure, come and sit at my right hand. In other words, not just come and take the weight off your feet, but come and occupy the unique divine position of creating and ruling and sustaining the world. Come and take your place as my right hand man. Who on earth is this figure? 
Well, that question evidently remained something of an unresolved head-scratcher over the subsequent centuries because it was brought up by Jesus himself in that debate with the religious leaders that we heard in our first reading. In response to the claim that the Messiah will be the son of David, Jesus quotes quotes Psalm 110 verse 1. And then Jesus asks, tellingly, David calls him, the Messiah, Lord. How then can he be his son? So I think what Jesus is saying is this. Yes, the Messiah will certainly come from the line of David, but that doesn't mean he'll be lesser than David. Because here David calls him Lord. We're used to hearing of children honouring their parents, but in this psalm we have the case of a parent honouring his child yet to be. David speaks prophetically in this verse of the Lord Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. And so tonight I'd like to dig a little deeper into how Psalm 110 points us to the unique identity and the saving work of Jesus, David's Lord and ours. And you'll see, you might have to kind of flick a little bit as we go through this um, on the order of service, but you'll see that essentially the psalm splits into two chunks. Um, Each of them opens with a statement that God makes in heaven about his Messiah. So God speaks to his king in verse 1 and makes a promise. And then God speaks to his priest in verse 4 and swears an oath. So why don't we look briefly at those two statements in turn. First, God speaks to his king and he makes a promise. This is the promise. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Christ is David's Lord and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Now that's metaphorical language, of course. We shouldn't get sidetracked by the old Sunday school misunderstanding where a child asks... Can God use only his left hand? Why would that be, queries the teacher? Well, replies the child, because Jesus is sitting on his right hand. Rather, to sit at God's right hand is to participate in his unique divine authority over all creation. After Jesus' death and resurrection, he ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. God exalts him just as emphatically as man had rejected him. And this verse is an eye-opener for the apostles, I think, partly because it shows how Jesus' ascension and his enthronement meant heavenly exaltation without divine competition. It affirms the divinity of Christ without thereby calling into question the glory of God the Father. Did you spot, moreover, that Jesus is not just at the right hand of the Father here, he is sat down. This denotes not just a position of settled authority, it speaks also of a finished work. Simon earlier quoted from the letter to the Hebrews. The Hebrews letter to the Hebrews also says this, When Christ had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time we wait for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Verse 1 is pointing us to the cross of Jesus Christ and to his finished redeeming work. What the prayer book calls his full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So Christ is not a high priest who, as it were, remains standing with more work to do. 
Still less does he wait for us to add our measly merit to his efforts. No, he sits down. His saving work is completed and accomplished and done. He cries out from the cross, doesn't he? It is finished. And that's why verse 1 shifts our attention not so much to Jesus' past work, but to his present rule over all things. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Note that crucial word there, until. Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, here we discover another reason, I think, why this verse made so much sense suddenly to the apostles. Because it recognises Christ's present rule, but also acknowledges that his full and visible vindication is yet to come. We've seen the inauguration, but not the, the consummation of Christ's kingly rule. This verse, in other words, accounts for the interval between Christ's exaltation and his final victory. And that's why we get the shift in tenses as we move into verses 2 and 3. This is a chance to turn over the page if you've got your order of service. Verses 2 and 3, let me look at those again. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. Now we're in the future tense. Here is a picture of Christ's final glorious triumph at the very end of the age. This is a date fixed in God's calendar from before the foundation of the world. There is no doubt that it will come. History is marching towards this singular end point when all the evil in this world, all the enemies who oppose the Lord, will find themselves utterly defeated. This is a day for which all who hunger and thirst for righteousness fervently long. It's a day when the wickedness and oppression and corruption of this present age will be no more. When there will be true justice because there will be true judgment. I'm not sure I'd ever really taken much notice of verse 3 before preparing this sermon. But in doing so, I think it's become my favourite verse of the whole psalm. Verse 3. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendour, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. I love it that the, the primary focus here is not so much on the final battle itself, or on the wickedness of the enemies, but on the gladness of the volunteers. This is a picture of the beauty of those whose lives have been changed by Christ, and who now march under the banner of their king. Here is a fine army shining in splendour, their garments spotless through being washed in the blood of the Lamb, full of youthful vigour, set apart by their holiness of life and goodness of heart. The imagery of the Jew is a little obscure, but I think it conveys abundance. Here is a great army that no man can number, and it conveys something of vitality and morning freshness. Here is a lively army who hasten with cheerfulness to their king. As I mentioned, the tense of verse 3 points us ultimately to a future day, but I wonder if there's a little encouragement for us here as the church, as the believers of this age, to embody something of this wonderful vitality and freshness in our witness to the world. Spurgeon puts it rather beautifully like this. He says, How wonderful is the eternal youth of the mystical body of Christ. As the dew is new every morning, so there is a constant succession of converts 
to give the church perpetual juvenility. Since Jesus ever lives, so his church shall ever flourish. As his strength never fails, so shall the vigour of his true people be renewed day by day. Like the countless dewdrops, they sparkle in the rays of the rising sun and reflect his radiance. It is a symbol of the refreshing which a weary world will receive from the conquests and presence of the king and his host. Such ought to be the effect of our presence. We are meant to gladden, to adorn, to refresh this parched, prosaic world with a freshness brought from the chambers of the sunrise. Christian men and women are to be in the midst of many people as a Jew from the Lord. In Psalm 110 then, God twice addresses his Messiah. First, we've seen that God speaks to his king in verse 1 and he makes a promise. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And now, secondly, God speaks to his priest there in verse 4 and he swears an oath. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, whereas God's words in verse 1 were a puzzle, how can there be two lords? God's words in verse 4 are a provocation. How can God's king also be God's priest? Because in ancient Israel, there was a clear separation of powers, we might say, between the monarchy and the priesthood. Government power was in the hands of a king from the tribe of Judah, and religious life was in the hand of priests of the tribe of Levi. One ruled the people for God, The other mediates with God for the people. So you could never have a priest who was a king or a king who was a priest. That would be unconstitutional. It would be unthinkable. But here in Psalm 110, that's precisely what we're presented with. The one who is identified as God's king in verse 1 is also revealed to be God's priest in verse 4. And as if aware of the possible objections being raised from all corners, God doesn't just state this. He swears it. And he doesn't just swear it, he adds a guarantee he won't go back on it. God's not doing this, I don't think, for his benefit, but for ours. Because this truth is so crucial to our present assurance. So, how can God's eternal king also be his forever priest? Well, the answer lies in the mysterious figure to whom this forever priesthood is immediately tied. Not Levi, not Aaron, but Melchizedek. We're being directed all the way back into the swirls and mists of time, to the time of Abraham, to Genesis chapter 14. And we read there, this man, Melchizedek, is both a king, the king of Salem, that's the ancient forerunner to Jerusalem, and a priest of God Most Most High. Melchizedek was king over the city, and he was priest for the city. He swayed both the scepter and the censer. Long before David, long before Aaron, here was a man who combined the offices of king and priest. And more than that, in Genesis 14, Abraham, the father of Israel, paid Melchizedek homage. Gave him a tenth of everything he had. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham, gave him gifts of bread and wine. In other words, the great patriarch Abraham acknowledged that this priest-king foreshadowed, in his unique person, someone who would be even greater than Abraham, even greater than the Levitical priesthood. The 
coming priest king in the order of Melchizedek would not be an ephemeral priest like all the other priests whose deaths were grimly inevitable and whose labours were manifestly inconclusive, but an eternal priest who would open a new and living way into God's presence forever. Again, we're pointed here to our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross on which he made for us the full and final sacrifice for sin. The priestly work of verse 4, moreover, explains how we get the saintly soldiers of verse 3. The army of the king who rules is constituted through the sacrifice of the priest who saves. It's through Christ's identity as the great high priest that he wins for his people forgiveness of sins and gives them access to God and changes their hearts and their lives. We might say in one sense here that Christ's priesthood is even more important than his kingship. It's because he is a king who is a priest that all else follows. If he were a king only, he would sadly have no human army to command, for none would be found worthy. But instead, as a priest, he makes a people for himself. And he does not do so by meeting out violence, not by bloodshed, but by taking all the violence and weakness of the world upon himself, by his bloodshed, to make atonement for all who would put their trust in him. What's more, Christ's present rule as king is shaped by his rule as priest. That's to say, he he rules not as some tyrannous potentate, a mere projection upwards of the worst excesses of human power and human subjection. He rules rather as slain lamb, as the one whose power is made perfect in weakness, as the one who has transfigured and transformed suffering through his sacrificial death. So, Psalm 110 points us to Christ, our great priest-king, the one who uniquely both rules and saves. What might be our response to this psalm? Well, if we'd say tonight we're someone who doesn't know or doesn't trust in Christ, let me warmly encourage you to see these verses as an invitation to come to him. Remember that crucial until of verse 1. Christ has not yet come in final victory because now is the time for forgiveness and for salvation. Psalm 110 invites all of us to flee from the folly of opposing God's king, while in God's mercy the time remains for us to do so. We can meet him now before we will meet him then. The king who will come to conquer is the priest who has offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. And each of us knows how many kings and how many lords vie for our primary allegiance, for our first love. We must pick our king. And finally, if we would say we do know and we do trust in Christ this evening, there is tremendous assurance to be found in this psalm. Our king and our priest is now seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven having completed his once-for-all sacrifice for sin, and he now ever lives to make intercession for us and to be the lifter-up of his people's heads. This psalm encourages us to gladly and freely offer him our devotion, our energy, our service, and to have confidence that our lives are in one sense already where Christ is. They are hidden there in absolute safety, 
awaiting his glorious return. So as we look ahead, as we look to the week to come, if we see dispiriting headlines in the news, if we face opposition at work, we face difficult conversations at home because of our faith, we can be reassured that God has set a date when he shall come in judgment, a date to which all history moves. No adversity can therefore now ultimately overwhelm believers and persecution or suffering, even death, will not be the final word on our lives. We can be confident we will never be on the wrong side of history if we're on the right side of Jesus. Our ruling king is also our saving priest. Our holy Lord is also our rescuing friend. Let me close with a final exhortation from that same letter to the Hebrews. Some words from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.